Welcome back to the Alts Podcast. I'm your host, Horatio Ruiz. We bring you industry leaders and creators to give their insights on the rapidly changing and exciting world of alternative assets. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the host and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. The intro song, Fishing for Pets, is written and composed by Alan Goldscher from his latest release, Live at the Lakeview Lounge. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. In this episode, we talk to Dylan Marma, the CEO and founder of The Recordy Group. Dylan has specialized in alternative real estate investments, focusing on opportunities with mobile park homes and RV campgrounds. In this episode, Dylan gives his thoughts on the current state of the real estate market, but he also provides some great insights on why he got into mobile and RV campgrounds and what it takes to spot and maintain a good investment. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dylan. All right, guys, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. We are going to learn about a different side of real estate. We have the founder and CEO of the Recordy Group, Dylan Marma. Welcome, Dylan. Thanks for having me, Horatio. Excited to be here, and hopefully we can bring some value to your audience. Absolutely. I'm sure I'm sure you will. We're definitely going to get into the Recordy Group, kind of what you guys specialize in, and a really interesting um, kind of alternative real estate. But before that, I kind of wanted to start with the issue of the day, right? There's a lot of talk about the housing market right now. Uh, in terms of there being a shortage, rental rates going up, the real estate rates going up. And I kind of wanted to get your take on it, you know, in terms of where we're at right now, what you're thinking about the market and how people can kind of traverse it. Yeah, of course. Well, this is something we spend quite a bit of time thinking about and discussing daily as we are mainly, largely, most of our portfolio revolves around affordable living. And that's the, you know, the problem that we're looking to solve for. And we think it's one that there is a huge need and demand for, which is why it's a space we love investing into. Right now, we're at a unique time period because we see a huge shortage of housing across the country. So there's just been a huge imbalance of supply and demand. And that resulted, as we saw in recent years, in just an extremely competitive residential market for home buyers who were waiving all contingencies and going straight with cash purchases and paying above listing price uh, to, to, to be able to get into a home and lock in, especially arguably a lot of that was accelerated through having low interest rates and wanting to take advantage of that um, and having you know reasonably low uh, home pay- payments relative to what they were before rates hit and more recent low. So, when it comes to that, um, you still have that same supply and demand issue going on, but now you see rising interest rates and now everyone's scratching their head and saying, well, now the payment for that, if I pay that same price that I was going to pay six months ago, I'm now, my, my monthly payment is significantly higher. So you're already seeing it start to materialize where pricing is beginning to adjust. It's not adjusting at all because there's a lack of demand in this case, right? I think it's adjusting almost directly in correlation with just keeping the payments the same for the home. So the same type of home is is affordable or, or still relatively affordable from the payment perspective for the people that were buying that home prior to rates hiking. That's, of course, like very broad level. I don't spend 
nearly as much time on the residential side, so I'm not going to cite too many specifics, but that's that's my my view right now on the current residential market. Most of my time is spent playing in the commercial real estate market where we're focused on you know larger communities, most of which are 100 plus total units and started off with apartments. And now we've done a lot of mobile home parks in addition to RV parks. So so we, we really observe this as our major food group is just multifamily real estate and the various forms of it. Um, and we think that right now is an interesting time period as, as buyers of these larger commercial assets, because we are seeing that, I believe I saw recently that mortgage applications are at a 20 year low right now. So we just went from having an insane amount of people trying to go and buy single family homes. And that was a large, you know, arguably a big, uh, an alternative towards living in one of our rental communities. And now we're seeing a huge pullback on new home buying due to rising interest rates and everyone pressing the brakes. Now, I don't know how long that will last. I don't know if that picks up again, if pricing corrects more significantly, but it does look good for people that are owning assets that are going to be able to be rented out as residential real estate right now. But at the same time, we're dealing with the same problem the buyers are because we're seeing rates rising. So people are slowly pulling back on pricing uh, to be able to accommodate for the rising rates. So there's a there's a lot of play, but that's, that's my kind of uh, long-winded summary. <laughs> No, I, I mean, the, the thing is that there are so many factors in play, right? And you're talking about things that were occurring, say, prior to COVID, right? And then mix it in with COVID, mix it in with, uh, you know, the amount of money maybe that was printed out there, the lower rates, and now throw that in with, you know, rising gas prices, inflation, and uh, rising, you know, rising interest rates. It takes an expert to analyze all of that. And sometimes even then, right, it's, there's no clear cut indication of what's happening or what's going to happen, you know, six months down the road or 12 months down the road. Interesting that you did mention uh, multifamily commercial units, right? How has that impacted uh, you and, and how do you see that? Like, obviously you said that mortgage applications that are, you know, are 20 year low. So naturally one would think that then there people are going to go toward rental units, right? Yeah, completely. I mean, rental units have been flooded with demand in recent years too, just as much as a lot of the residential market on the on the buy and sell side has been as well. So because this is all happening so real time and, and so recently, I can't say that we've seen rental rates increase significantly since mortgage applications decreased because they're just decreased within the last you know 60 days or so. So it's hard to say exactly how it's going to impact us. But I, I'd say that if we look at just the the last few years, or even if you want to take like from COVID to present day, we, we've seen rental rates just just start to skyrocket across the country. And, and I think it's somewhat a function of inflation. It's also a function of increasing wages, because if you look at, um, I think, contrary to popular belief, a lot of the rental rates have grown almost in direct proportion to the uh, wage growth over time. Uh, so, so if you look at that in a lot of these major growing cities, you're seeing new jobs come in, higher incomes getting distributed, and and that's also putting pressure on rental rates. Um, so you were, we're seeing that being a function of just being in a, say it's been a healthy economy, growing economy is probably a better term for it. Um, and I think that's that's the question is now that we've seen you know, major markets. We're sitting in Tampa, Florida today, where we've seen you know twenty percent plus rental rate growth in, in just a year. We just know that's not that's not sustainable. But it's a question of does that just start to taper off, or does it flatten off completely? Does it even go down? 
Uh, all right, I think these are a lot of the questions that we're asking ourselves at this point in time. But let's kind of get into it. Let's talk about the Requity Group. You have mentioned it before earlier today, earlier in the podcast. Uh, but I'm interested in you know the investment fund that you have, uh, what kind of properties you you are investing in, and kind of like what your what your thesis was for the the funds that you are establishing. Yeah, completely. So. I'll take a step back to where I got my start full-time in commercial real estate for a little bit over five years now. I got my start in multifamily apartments, uh, was actually living in Tennessee at the time. We're buying throughout Tennessee and Kentucky and surrounding areas and really fell in love with the business, enjoyed all aspects of it. We were vertically integrated, so we managed all of our own assets. So I learned a lot about the ins and outs of not just how to think about buying the properties, but also how to really effectively manage them and keep them occupied and keep them at, you know, maximizing their income potential. Uh, then right before COVID broke out, my partners and I at the time went in different directions. So I started a new company under the Equity Group. And at that time, I'd say that I saw a real opportunity in the manufactured housing community space or the mobile home park space, right? I, I saw that I had a light bulb moment where I realized that these are one, one of the most affordable forms of housing available. Two, there was a, an overall net decrease, not a huge one, but there's a net decrease of supply. So while every other form of residential housing is increasing in supply, there was a year-over-year decrease on the total supply available within the MHP space. And there was an increase in need of, for affordable housing. And, and then beyond that, I also realized that the average resident would stay for 15 to 20 years. So starting off within multifamily apartments, the average stay is about two years. Uh, it's about 40 or 50% turnover rate year over year. Whereas to see that these the average resident that buys their own home within a manufactured housing community will stay for 15 to 20 years, really what that indicated to me was that there's a lot less risk than maybe is perceived on the onset of this. Um, and, and I saw that the returns were disproportionate compared to where a lot of other commercial real estate was at the time, um, you could get just outsized returns given the level of perceived risk that I interpreted at that time. So we really made a huge push into that space. We went out and ended up buying several communities that put us into the top 100 owners in the country. Uh, We bought over a thousand lots of manufactured housing. And then that ended up sort of segueing us into the RV campground space. We started off with some RV campgrounds that had some long-term leases. And then we eventually started to get into some RV campgrounds that had more of a short-term hospitality component to it because both of those have a similarity in the sense that they're both land lease businesses. Um, So you're really renting out the land and you don't have all the constant deferred maintenance and CapEx headaches that you, you have when you're investing into more property intensive real estate investments. Uh, so we, we like both models. And currently today, I'd say the market caught up to where I was thinking and how I was thinking about mobile home parks two years ago. And the pricing has gotten really, really high and, and really competitive, which has been phenomenal for our current portfolio. But it's made it a little bit tougher to find new product that we're as excited about. So we occasionally do still find stuff that gets us very excited and we're very active on the uh, the buy side, but I, I'd say that you know we we had a really good run early on, and now we are still actively pushing. But it's you know it's coming down to just a lot of off market, which we've always done off market. We've never bought one 
on the market, but now we're going the extra mile with a lot more cold calling, direct outreach, just tra- trying to find the, uh, we'll say the last of the sort of mom and pop ownership opportunities out there. And the RV campground space where we've been much more active in as of recent, as we found that there's a lot of true mom and pop deals out there. There's a lot more inefficient pricing. There's not nearly the level of direct competition, um, which you know has given us the opportunity to have, uh, that we have seven RV campground acquisitions in the last 12 months, which has definitely been been a fun business and we've been really happy with the results this far. Just curious, how were you able to identify that kind of um, that opportunity there with the mobile home parks? Like, you know, I, I imagine that once you get into commercial real estate, that maybe that would be something completely off the radar. Maybe, maybe I'm incorrect, but how did that come on your radar and how did you notice that there was an opportunity there? Yeah. So I was in apartments and I, I watched the, golden age of apartments put cap rates from being able to buy in a secondary market from at a at say like a seven cap down to a six cap down to a five cap and i'm just watching returns start to dwindle in terms of what's possible on the yield on the apartment side and for good reason i'm still a huge believer in traditional multifamily as well and still would say that I'm, I'm a buyer if the right product is out there but i was i was seeing you know returns compress in front of my eyes and then I had, I actually met Jim Clayton through uh, another connection in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I was living at the time, who is the you know, owner, the, I guess, not the owner anymore as much, but the more of the founder of Clayton Homes, uh, the largest manufacturer of MHP in the country. And I, because he was out of Knoxville, I had a few friends out of Knoxville that were early on with investing into mobile home parks. And I remember them starting to talk about how they were upset because they couldn't get 20% cash on cash anymore. And I'm sitting there saying, well, I can't even get 10% cash on cash anymore. So why are you upset? Right? So um, I remember, you know, really having that wake up call when I, when I really started to dig in and ask them the right questions. And I said, well, well you know, I, I, of course, like anything else, you always wish you were earlier to the party, but I, I think we've still caught a really good run because we saw that there was a huge gap between you know, we saw where multifamily had went and we said, well, I think mobile home parks are probably going to go there as well, um, if, if not even compressed further than multifamily has because of the the low risk, low turnover nature to it. Yeah. And I wonder, and I, one of my questions to you was like, you know, and maybe I'll share my personal kind of story with, with mobile homes, but, you know, I remember I had friends living in mobile homes and, you know, we never really went, you know, to those neighborhoods maybe it was a little bit of a, a stigma, some embarrassment, maybe, you know, that you're living in like maybe a low income building. But I do remember going like when we finally graduated high school and we got invited over for like a party. And um, not that I had any sort of, you know, expectations, but I was like, wow, you know, it, it was nice. Uh, you know, for, for lack of better words, I, I, I you know, I, I could see that the mobile homes were well maintained and there was definitely room for, for a family to live in. Was there ever a hesitancy there? Like with that stigma where it's like, why are you kind of in that area when you could be doing something else? Yeah. So I think that, you know, growing up in upstate New York, there's probably more of a stigma there than there is in a lot of the different States and markets that we, we invest into. Um, so definitely there was a little bit of that. I think from my standpoint, I'm, I'm agnostic towards, you know, the asset, type in the sense of, I think that it doesn't really impact me about investing into like the prettier looking deals versus the the uglier looking stuff. Right. But I, I know that does, that does matter for investors, but I think in my head more of where I thought the risk 
probably lied was I thought that maybe that this is a lower income demographic. So maybe there's more defaults, right? They're not going to be able to pay the rent. There's going to be more defaulting and they're going to be, you know, they're going to flee more often. And what I realized was that the difference maker here is that one, this is a land lease business. So you don't have all of the constant turnover. Uh, So you're not going to be constantly repairing floors and roofs and things along those lines, assuming that the resident owns their home. And then, and then two, I realized that they actually own their home. So that a lot of times we're buying communities where we own the homes at first, we sell them off. But when we sell off the homes, now it's a, we call it a tenant owned home or a resident owned home. It's probably their biggest asset to their name. They might have 10 or 20,000 or in some markets, maybe up to a hundred thousand tied up in this, this home on the property. And it's going to cost probably 5,000 just to move it. They're heavily invested in living in that home and and maintaining that home. And they definitely don't want to get evicted um, because that's going to mean it's going to be really costly to go move that home to someone else's community. So I think there's true alignment of interests. That backed by the fact that your average lot rent is usually 50% or so of what they might be paying in rent for an apartment. So the, the reality is that even though this it depends, uh, of course, why there's a wide variety of different income levels that live in these communities. But, you know, again, we're, we're talking mostly on the, the true affordable living communities, um, even though, you know, they, they might have a higher rate of defaulting on like paying for an apartment or might, might have, have a higher collections loss in an apartment. They're talking a much lower level of all in income owed from them and more skin in the game, which actually leads you to having oftentimes better end result in terms of your collections lost than like a C-class apartment. And it's a lot less headache intensive. I mean, if, don't get me wrong, property management's never fun and there's always headaches, but it's, it's not nearly as, as rough as on the onset that one like myself might perceive it to be. Yeah, such good insights. That, that's an interesting idea that they own the home, but they're still kind of paying a lease right on the land. Uh, that's kind of yeah. a, an interesting um, kind of thing. And then maybe on top of that, maybe some like association fees or something like that, right? And I just want to speak to that because I mean, I, I'm in this business day to day. So I don't know from the outside world, if you're not actively investing in real estate or rental properties, I, I think that it's easy to underestimate what that means. It's not just an occasional replacement of a floor. I mean, when you invest into an, a heavy property intensive asset, like uh, like an apartment building, for instance, it's sort of death by a thousand needles of just, just like one thing after the next thing after the next thing. And, it, and it's constantly consuming and sucking up cash from you along the way. So I think that when you see the the true savings on repairs and maintenance and capex by not having to replace constant HVACs and flooring and and subfloor issues and water leaks and roof replacements and all of the other things that come along with it, I definitely feel like that's a huge plus when you really kind of put it under a microscope. Great point. Uh, and and so then. You noticed that you got in kind of you got you got in early, uh, and then you realized that the rest of the industry may be caught up, uh, and so then you've seen, you've seen another opportunity, and you've been very you know open about it with uh, RV campgrounds. What are the differences? Obviously, you know we could think of a couple, but what are the major differences between an RV campground and a mobile park? Yeah, and as mentioned, I, I think we're definitely bullish on both of the two, and it's more about where can we find the returns that meet our sort of target metrics at the time. So um, we love mobile home communities, and we'll always have those in our portfolio, and we'll always continue to be buyers. Um, but yeah, definitely, we've just found more 
volume of RV campgrounds that we could make sense of recently. And it was a natural segue because we were in one land lease business. And this one is oftentimes, I think our first one was actually, it was a half mobile home community and then half campground or half long-term RV. So it just sort of one, one kind of led us into the next one as we got to better understand the, the model. I think why it's often misunderstood is that there's a, there are a lot of different types of RV campgrounds, right? Um, and some look a lot more like apartments do, and some look a lot more like hotels do, and some look like motels do, right? And some look like resorts, right? So, so I think you really have to kind of narrow down and identify what type of RV campground is sort of your bread and butter. And to put it simply, I, I like to say that there are long-term and then there are short-term. The short-term can be bucketed into either like luxury resorts, high amenity, high dollar per night stays, or and then there's short term that are more of like your general like outdoor camper that are there for more like low frills, low amenity, but you know, reasonable rates and just good service and safe places to come visit. Uh, then on the long term side, you have long term utility focus, which are like true affordable living, which function very, very similar to that of mobile home parks. And then you also have your long term that are more second homes, right? They're more destination uh, second homes where people will go go every weekend. And I'd say that out of the two or out of the, you know, we call it the four total buckets. Um, we like the long-term stuff the best. Um, we, we really like, uh, we really like to focus on long-term that are in great markets that right now uh, will likely serve as second homes for the, uh, the campers that come and visit. They will be there for you know years and years on end. Ideally, we want to we want them to be there for decades. We want them to come out to all of our community events and keep their camper there and have their kids come visit. And a lot of times they have their boat there as well, so they're going to go you know take fishing trips. And it's just a great I think uh, living environment for for people. Um, and I think it's it's much more affordable than a lot of your traditional vacation types. And you get to have a frequency of vacations that a lot of people just don't get the chance to experience. So those campgrounds for us have been definitely our favorite, I'd say, our, our bread and butter for the most part. We do have some short-term campgrounds as well, which are higher cash flow, definitely higher returns. But I think that the long-term is just, I, I think that's just more of like a personal thing as, as investors. I think we like we like sort of the, the consistent, steady, long-term uh, stream of cash flows. Um, that, that's usually where we gravitate towards the most. Um, but the short-terms, we also think can be phenomenal for high cash flow, but just like anything else, it just comes down to being in the right location. I'd say what we don't like are the deals that are built in the middle of nowhere and they're just there to kind of draw people two hours away from town to come to some sort of resort or destination location where there's no, there's no real draw or utility function outside of just being there at that campground. Um, I think we we've walked away from numerous deals that kind of fit that mold, and we we go after deals that are in stronger locations. That whether they're coming for you know a weekend or coming for years on end, they're they're there, and it's a good location where there's some surrounding retail and surrounding you know uh, jobs, um, so that they we can wear multiple hats as, as we kind of navigate through different environments. Such an interesting analysis uh, of, of where, where it is that you're, you know, you're talking about, you know, the SWAT, right? The strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, all that stuff. Um, what makes a great campground? Like what makes, what makes a great, let's say long-term campground? What makes a great short-term uh, campground? And 
I read somewhere that one also big difference is, you know, who's managing the properties, right? That that's kind of a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Are RV campgrounds much more, you know, management intensive than say mobile homes? Oh yeah. It's a totally different business in that sense. Um, we've always leaned into some more active management projects from the get-go as value-add investors. So it didn't really intimidate us all that much in that sense, but it is definitely more management intensive. I think your community manager or your your campground manager, they are really the heart and soul of that campground. And getting that hire right is everything, whether it's long-term or short-term, doesn't really matter. It's that their, their presence is going to be felt throughout every inch of that property. And I think it's really important to be able to have the right managers and also build the right culture in terms of your team that interacts with that manager to make sure that we're giving these residents the or campers the top the top notch um, experience. So you know, we've been fortunate to just have a rock star team and we do uh, a ton of events depends on the size of the campground. Some, some might be every weekend, some might be every other week. Um, but we, we have constant events where, uh, campers can get together and, you know, I, I think sometimes if you're on the water, you might have fireworks that go off over the water. We've done tie dye t-shirt events. We've done St. Patty's day events. We've done father's day, mother's day events. We've done all kinds of different, you know, events for the, the kids, so, so that's number one is the people and the events and like the true hospitality and make people feel safe, making them feel like a part of a community and, and like being, being there to welcome them and, you know, make sure their experience is number one. And then, and then secondary, I think it's, yeah, just thinking about like your, your amenity set, what is the layout of the campground, right? Is there enough room between the various campers? Is there the right, you know, the right infrastructure in place? You definitely want to have full hookups these days. You want to have good full hookups, meaning 30 and 50 amp electric, as well as water and sewer at each and every site. You also want to have good Wi-Fi. I think that's getting more and more important as more people are actually living from the road now. Um, so having a really good campground Wi-Fi is crucial when it comes to your infrastructure. Having a bathhouse and a laundry room are essentials. If they're not there, we try to install those at every campground. Um, that means that you know people have a bigger bathroom to go and take showers in. Um, because sometimes the campgrounds, sometimes your camper gets either too small or you have too many people in there. So it's good to have a nice, clean, big bathhouse in addition to a laundry room, because same thing there, a lot of them have like the all-in-one washer dryer. So having a nice wash, uh, nice laundry room where you can do a big load of laundry goes a very long way. Uh, dog parks, a lot of campers have dogs. We love doing the dog parks in there. We love having our, you know, Fire pits, ideally big gas fire pits with a bunch of Adirondack chairs around it, sort of a community gathering place. Um, we always like to throw up the string lights around the community, right, to have it kind of bring some life to it at night. And I mean, the list definitely goes on and on. We have our whole list of our you know, sort of go-to amenities and um, things along those lines, like even things like cornhole boards where you have competitions and stuff like that. I, I, you know, they, it all goes a long way. Um, so... That's in a nutshell some of the the key things I think that make a make a great campground. So so many things that go into it that uh, you know on the outside you wouldn't really you know uh, realize at first. And and I guess I'm I'm thinking like, you know, with mobile homes and maybe even RV campgrounds like if maybe they have become more prevalent, right? Like as maybe single family homes become more difficult to attain. Maybe these are even uh, you know like you mentioned second homes, which definitely they you know RV campgrounds are, are that. But even 
you know, maybe these are going to become like the future first home for, for home buyers, you know, and a good way of kind of entering a market and owning some property. I mean, I wonder if, if you know, if I could get your take on that. Glad you hit on that because that's actually my, my bet is that a lot of the RV campgrounds, which are there for almost you know, a few years ago, I think it was almost exclusively recreation. And then once COVID hit, it seemed like it sort of made living in your RV more normal because people started to pick up and move around the country and they can work from the road. So they said, well, I'm just going to sell my house and buy an RV and uh, never look back. Right. And now I think that they were doing that more by, by choice. Um, but I think that not that this is, you know, ever pleasant to say, but I think there might be a point where we, we see that more by necessity where it's, you know, people are saying, well, I'm getting kind of priced out of the, the home market. I'd rather be paying off something that I'm going to own rather than renting an apartment. So I'd rather be, you know, at least paying down my, my RV and, and, uh, going and getting a camper and then paying half my monthly rent goes towards my RV. My $500 payment goes towards that. And then 500 goes towards my lot rent. So I'm paying at the same thousand dollars a month, but I'm getting something that, you know, I can call mine and it gives me flexibility to travel and, you know, experience things that I'd like to experience, that kind of thing. So um, I think that that's there's, there's a definitely a, a fairly strong possibility of um, that becoming a, a more normal way of life. I mean, it just seems natural that that would that would happen at this point in the, with the direction everything's going in and, and rent and homeownership becoming more and more difficult to obtain and, and RVs. I think they don't really care the same stigma. I think people, you know, like the idea of living in a campground. And I think that especially like the younger generation, I think um, kind of will view it as a pretty, you know, freeing kind of cool experience. Um, uh, you know, and again, I don't, I don't know how much that, that changes when they start having kids and things along those lines, depending on where everyone's at in life. But um, I, I could definitely see it becoming more, more common for sure. Yeah. And I, and I think that what I, what I took away from you, if, if I can have my own little observation was, you know, the idea of creating a community, you know, at these campgrounds. And I think that that would make life, you know, living there so much more appealing, right? Like you feel like you're a part of a community because, you know, sometimes maybe you don't feel that way, wherever it is that you're living in a city, uh, you don't feel part of your community. You live there, but I could see sort of being in a, in a, maybe in a smaller size campground, having these events and just feeling like you're a part of something, right? Couple more questions, Dylan. Uh, so, such a great conversation, man. Um, you're, you're primarily based out of the the southeast, and um, I'm, I'm wondering if most of your investments are in the southeast. If that's a you know like a geographical thing, and I was also curious. I mean, you know, if you could maybe give me a a, a ballpark figure, like you know, what's it cost to acquire an RV campground? You know, depending on like a, a longer term one or even a shorter term one. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, most of our investments are in the southeast. Pretty much all of them at this point, and we. We try to keep it that way. Occasionally, we'll look at things that are just outside of our, you know, target. But we we really try to keep it that way. It's nice to have economies of scale that you get, and being able to build teams in specific states that can all be there to support each other, and you get to really know the markets intimately to understand how the assets are priced and what kind of occupancy and rental rates you're able to hit in certain markets, things along those lines. Um, so we love the Southeast and, you know, it seems like it's continuing to grow and head in the right direction. So, uh, all, all around very, very happy with that. And also generally a very business friendly environment, regulatory environment as well. Now, when it comes to, um, pricing, pricing can vary so much on RV campgrounds. Um, I guess you could say that about a lot of asset classes, but I mean, I've seen stuff where I couldn't make sense of it for 10,000 per site. And I've seen other stuff where I couldn't make, or I could make perfect sense of it at a hundred thousand per site. So I think that 
the location is everything. And I, I really wouldn't focus on price per site. I think that's a pretty poor metric to go off when you're talking pricing. I would I would look at more so cap rate when you're going off for pricing, right? Because your cap rate is is pretty much for those that aren't real estate people, it's your unlevered return. So a good, you know, cap rate, I think, you know, most people would say is somewhere in the RV campground world is probably going in north of a seven, but you know, ideally you can buy a value add deal that that you can bring up to maybe a double digit cap rate, like a 10% cap rate or something along those lines. And if you add in leverage back into the equation, your overall returns start to look really, really attractive, but I would be focused on cap rate. And I would also be focused on the underlying risk, right? Because there's some deals that might look good from a, cap rate or return standpoint, but you might be somewhere in the middle of nowhere next to some oil rig that's going to close down in 12 months. And if that closes down, then you have no one there to occupy your your place any any further, right? So like anything with real estate, it's not just what is the return on the service level if things go right, but it's like, what is, what is the underlying risk behind the investment? And you have a diverse group of of campers or residents you're able to pull from um, to be able to live in your community, and how do you how do you ensure that the cash flows are stable? Right, it's not just you know not every dollar of cash flow is the same. You you definitely want to make sure you're looking at the durability of your cash flow. Great. I guess I want to leave with you know how people could kind of uh, get in touch with with you, Dylan. You know maybe follow some of some of your stuff and kind of what's on the horizon for the Equity Group. You know how do you see the next year going for for you, are there some things that you're going to be uh, focusing on more, or kind of uh, looking to pivot somewhere else? Yeah, no, we're we're wrapping up our third fund, and we're still bullish on all things affordable living here in the southeast. So, um, you know, we keep keep our eyes on a swivel for you know everything we mentioned on the call today: apartments, mobile homes, and RV campgrounds here in the southeast. Uh, we, we think that you know, there's there's a huge demand, and uh, we want to be there to provide great experiences for those that live in our communities. So in terms of uh, getting in contact, you can always visit therequitygroup.com. I'm sure we'll throw that in the show notes. And then uh, you can always add me on LinkedIn, Dylan Marma on LinkedIn. And, you know, you can shoot me a message on there and I'd love to love to connect. Yeah. And I just want to give your, your podcast a plug as well. I know you have your own podcast. That's right. Yep. And, and operators and allocators is our podcast that we run through the Equity Group. So we, we uh, oftentimes will teach on some of the stuff we talked on today or um, whatever's kind of coming to mind as well as interview uh, some some great guests as well. So, Dylan, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. It was great talking to you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Show. Appreciate it. Have a good day. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's always a pleasure talking to someone doing something different like Dylan and willing to share their experiences. To learn more about Dylan and his company, listen to his podcast, Operators and Allocators, streaming on all major platforms. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed the podcast, give us a five-star rating or give us some feedback. Until the next time, take care.